Thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in His gospel. Now, please enjoy the Sermon Podcast. The last residential education that I had was about six and a half years long. And it started on July 1st, 2008. And the first day that I went in, I uh, downloaded a, a countdown and I put in the, the end date and it was 2,372 days later. And after the first day, there was still 2,371 days left. And it seemed like this, this program would never end. And after the first year, I still had more than 2,000 days and I would keep watching this thing go by. And the, and the countdown app had, had, um, had uh, a countdown in days and down to milliseconds. So it was a few million milliseconds and I could watch it uh, count down. And there were some good days and there were some horrible days during the program. And even on the worst days, at the end of the worst day, I could come and look at my countdown. No matter how bad the day had been, I was closer to my goal than I ever was uh, before. This morning in a sermon entitled, The Wedding Countdown, I want to look at an account that comes to the, at the end of a long period of waiting. Our text is in Revelation chapter 19 and verses 6 through 10. Revelation 19, 6 through 10. I'm going to read verses 6 through 9 for us, which will be be relevant for today's sermon. So you can keep your Bibles or or your phones open to this passage throughout the rest of the sermon, and we will refer to it multiple times. Let me read for us Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard the Lord and loud peals of thunder. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, and he added, these are the true words of God. I've divided the sermon into three parts. In the first part, we will look at the word hallelujah. And in the second and the third parts, we will look at two reasons why the gratitude here is encouraged to give uh, or to say hallelujah. Let me read verse 6 again. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting hallelujah. Now, hallelujah is a word that is a command to praise God. It is, a, it is an imperative that means praise Yah, praise Yahweh. And it, and it occurs about 24 times in the Psalms, but in the New Testament, the word does not occur at all, except in this one chapter. And in this chapter, Revelation chapter 19, it occurs four times. Now, we are at the end of Revelation, and uh, you've been going through the book of Revelation for the last several weeks, and I heard that you guys are all experts on the book of Revelation. So I'm going to give, I know you are experts, but I'm going to give a very quick overview of the book of Revelation to get us up to speed to where we are in Revelation chapter 19. 
Revelation chapter 1 starts with Jesus revealing himself to John, who is isolated on the island of Patmos. In chapter 2 and 3, it talks about Jesus gives uh, uh, information to nine church, to seven churches to John, which are scattered in Asia Minor, which is current-day Turkey. In chapter 4, in in heaven, where God is at the center. In chapter 5, it is talking, it's another scene in heaven with Jesus at the center. Then in chapter 6 through 19, it is the judgment of God. Chapter 6 through 19, there are three sequences of judgment. There are the seven scrolls, and the seventh scroll leads to the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet leads to the seven bowls. So there are a sequence of uh, 21 judgments, and in between that, there are parenthetical passages. For, so for example, in chapter uh, 7, there's a parenthetical passage. Chapter 11, there's a parenthetical passage. So, but the basis is the judgment of God has seen uh, uh, on, on earth. One of the main concerns in the book of Revelation is God's vengeance on behalf of his people who were Christian martyrs. So at the very beginning of this section, Revelation chapter 6 through 19 is this entire section of judgment, 15 chapters. And at the very beginning of it, in Revelation chapter 6 verse 10, it reads, They had cried, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. So these are people that were martyred for their faith, martyred for their love of Jesus, and now they are ridiculed because of their faith. But they were tortured and they were killed because of their faith. <clears throat> A court in Pakistan recently sentenced two Christian brothers on some charges which are loose, um, charges without evidence of blasphemy. And they were put in jail in 2014. They were condemned to death in 2018. They appealed. And uh, earlier in 2022, this year, they, uh, their appeal was rejected by the uh, court in Lahore. And they are sentenced to death. There are numerous people across the countries that are dying for their faith. One of the main explicit themes in the book of Revelation, and, and there are multiple implicit themes, but the main, one of the main explicit themes in the book of Revelation is the justice of God. And the three hallelujahs that are said in this chapter is, uh, talks about the first one celebrates God's justice. The second hallelujah celebrates the eternal nature of that justice. And the third hallelujah, the one that we read, recognizes God's sovereignty in the context of his justice. You look around and you can see people wronging each other and being wronged. There are people in jail supposed to be in jail. There are people outside that are supposed to be in jail. And there is injustice, and God will bring, every, uh, bring justice and correct every injustice. There are two reasons in this passage why the multitude says this final hallelujah. The first one is that the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. I want to ask three questions about this verse. Um, which says, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let me ask three questions. Who is it that reigns? Who is it that reigns? The Lord God Almighty reigns. This is an Old Testament term that is being used in the New Testament. 
And um, it occurs 10 times in the New Testament, and nine of those times it is in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> One time it is in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, but that is a reference to the Old Testament, so that doesn't really count. So the entire mention of this phrase, the Lord God Almighty, is all in the book of Revelation. Lord is the one who exercises supernatural authority over mankind. God is the one supreme supernatural being, creator and sustainer of the universe. And Almighty is the one who controls all things, the omnipotent. Secondly, whose is it that reigns? It is not the Lord God Almighty that reigns. It is our Lord God Almighty that reigns. It is one thing to know that there is a superpower, but it is a completely different thing to realize that that superpower is our superpower, is on our behalf. One of the most famous verses in the New Testament is Romans chapter 8, verse 31, which reads, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? We all know it by by heart. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is a, it's called a conditional sentence. It's a if-then sentence, right? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, in the Greek, I don't want to get too into detail, but in the Greek, there are four types of conditional sentences. Condition of the first class, the second class, the third class, and the fourth class. Um, this happens to be a first-class conditional sentence. And what that means is that the if, it is assumed to be true, the premise is assumed to be true for the sake of the argument. So when it says, if God is for us, it's not that it is uncertain. The if is assumed to be true for the argument, so it is better translated, since God is for us, who can be against us? And, the, and it is a rhetorical question, is it not? Because if, since God is for us, no one can be against us. There is a very famous Old Testament story about David and Goliath. And uh, David comes to fight Goliath, but Goliath is not the only giant uh, on the field. There are multiple other giants that David has to deal with. Um, including wrong military advice, including uh, lack of experience, including familial disdain. But the biggest... You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. Did you see that threefold name of God in that sentence? I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. Sometimes it is possible to think that the biggest, uh, that the most visible giant in the room is the greatest giant. But since God is for us, who can be against us? What a relief to know that the greatest power in the universe is for us question that I want to ask in, in relation to this uh, sentence is what does or who does God reign over? Let me read the verse again. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Who does he reign over? The verse doesn't say it. You know why? Because the verse doesn't need to say it. 
When it says that the Lord God Almighty reigns, it doesn't need to specify who he reigns over. It includes everybody. The Lord reigns over everything. The, the book of Revelation was written in a time of persecution um, where the church was being persecuted by Rome. And there are um, um, letters that were written that were discovered much later. As example, in the Qumran caves that were discovered that showed people that were fleeing persecution at that time. And they wrote notes and they, and they stuffed it in caves. And it showed that there was an intense persecution going on. Death was always present, and it is in this context that God is being described as almighty. The last thing that they would have thought of as they are fleeing persecution is that God is almighty. My um, grandmother died a few days ago, and yesterday was her funeral. In the midst of, absolutely. In the midst of failure, does God reign? Absolutely. The Lord God Almighty still reigns, and for that, we say hallelujah. hallelujah. The second reason why the great multitude said hallelujah was because of the marriage of the Lamb. And let me read verse 7 for us. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The wedding of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. The relationship of God as in, with humans as a marriage relationship extends throughout the fact the Bible starts off with the marriage relationship with Adam and Eve, and then it ends with this, which is a marriage relationship. And if you look at the Old Testament in the, in the um, prophetical writings, so for example, in uh, Ezekiel and Hosea and, and Jeremiah, it talks about how God is a husband. God is a husband to his people. And then you come to the Gospels and you see numerous parables by Jesus where, he's, where he talks about the bride and the groom and the bridesmaids and the groomsmen and he talks about this theme of marriage. And then you come to uh, the Pauline writings in Ephesians 5, for example, which talks about the church being like a pure bride. Gonna get married in the near future. Recently married? Gonna get married. Excellent, excellent. That's the perfect illustration I have for later. Right. <laughs> marriage is congratulations, congratulations. <laughs> marriage is one of those key events in the human timeline that is unlike anything other right there is a there is a celebration in the middle of it but there are two protracted events on either side right there's an event on either side that are protracted but the but the key of it is this huge celebration right at the middle so let's first talk about the celebration. Um, the celebration is right in the middle of, of the marriage of the whole human timeline. And it says here, the wedding of the lamb has come. Marriage celebration is different in different cultures. You know, in, in, uh, um, in American culture, I have found out that you can have a marriage celebration with less than 50 people, and that's completely okay. Uh, if you did that in the Indian culture, you would lose a lot of family and a lot of friends. Not going to happen. So the average Indian marriage, so for, for my marriage, we had about 700 to 1,000 people. That's normal. That's the average Indian marriage. 700 to 1,200 people is normal. 
Uh, yes, but we don't have to do that. Still, but they'll play it. Um, so, in in Jewish culture, when you when you look at the marriage culture in 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 Jewish culture, um, there are parallels with the coming of Jesus. So the way it is is that the bridal party is in the bride's home, waiting for the groom's party to arrive. The groom and his party arrive to the bride's home, and uh, the father of the bride gives the bride over to the groom, and then the groom and the bride and the parties, they walk through the village to the groom's house. And you see the parallels between how Jesus comes back. And they walk to the groom's house where they have the wedding supper, which can last well into the night and sometimes several days. And during the celebration, there is love, there is excitement, there is anticipation, and there's a lot of emotions, right? That's part of the celebration. Whether it's 50 or 1,000, that's part of the celebration of emotions. But there is an event that happens after after the celebration, what I will call realization. Okay, realization is where you, you realize or you live out the dream of the marriage, right? You live out the dream of the marriage. How many of you would say, you know, those of you, not you, but those of you who have been married, all your expectations or dreams that you get for your marriage has been fulfilled. Actually, let's not have anybody put their hands up because... because <laughs> Your dreams are going to get shattered even more when you go back home. <laughs> Part of the realization phase is that, yes, you live out the marriage, but you also come to a quick realization that none of your dreams are going to be completely fulfilled. Right? There is no relationship on earth that can fully satisfy us. And if we walk into a marriage thinking that, that we are going to be fully satisfied and that all our dreams fulfilled, we are completely fooling ourselves. There is no relationship on earth. There is nothing on earth. Forget relationships. There is nothing on earth that can fully satisfy us. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote these words. He's talking about heaven, but he said this about longing. He said, most of us find it very difficult to want heaven at all, except insofar as heaven means meeting again our friends who have died. One reason for this difficulty is that we have not been trained. Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. Another reason is that when the real want for heaven is present in us, we do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. In fact, the, the fact that we have a longing for something that cannot be satisfied in this world is evidence that there has to be another world or another person who will fulfill our deepest longing. One of our contemporary thinkers, <clears throat> Camilla Cabello, in her 2018 song, Havana Unana. <laughs> Half of my heart is in Havana Unana. He took me back to East Atlanta, na 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 but my heart is in Havana. See, she was in East Atlanta, and she was longing for Havana. 
But she couldn't go. Nothing on earth can fulfill our deepest longing. Nothing. So we have the wedding celebration, we have the realization, but before the celebration, there is preparation. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given there. We are now in the preparation phase, right? We have not yet reached the celebration and the realization phase. In fact, when we reach the realization phase in heaven, we will find out that we, our dreams will fully be satisfied. But right now, we are in the preparation phase. And it says, fine linen was given to her and she made herself ready. Fine linen was given to her and she made herself ready. What is it? It is both, right? It is both that fine linen was given and she used that to self ready. Now, what this means is that salvation has been given to us and we use salvation to do righteous acts. And that's what this verse says. Um, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Let's read a verse. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. And when you read that, you think that the Christian faith is just like any other religion where we need to work out our salvation. Until you read the next verse which says, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. It is God who works in us so that we will and act so that we can work out the works of salvation. So uh, the works of salvation is not in order to get saved. And we need to be real clear about that. It is not that we are doing righteous acts so that we can be saved. That is the theology of every other religion. The Christian faith is where God freely gives us the gift of salvation, freely has declared us righteous, and because of that, we do righteous acts. But how do we know if our preparation at this time for the future wedding is healthy? Let me give you three, three suggestions, three indicators how we can know if our preparation for our wedding in the future is healthy. There's an emotional aspect to it. There is a longing component, right? This young lady is going to get married. There is a longing for it. I mean, if you're going to get married 20 years from now, yes, you're not. It's not, yeah, you're longing, but not really. But as you come closer to it, the longing intensifies. Then there is a mental component to it such that the percentage of that you have about your marriage keep increasing, right? The closer and closer you come to it, the, the more thoughts you have about the, about the upcoming marriage. And then there is a behavioral aspect to it. If, if, if you're going to get married and you're moving to the United Kingdom, for example, if that was the plan, then you're not going to you know, two weeks before marriage, you're not going to buy a house in the U.S., right? You're not going to settle down because you know you are moving. 
and you're going your way. So there is a behavioral component that has to change as we think about the marriage. Let me ask you a question. How many times in the last one week did we think about the second coming of Jesus Christ? In the West, we are so comfortable with our current existence that it's easy not to ever think about it. When it happens, it happens. We are so busy with our stuff that's easy not to think about it. It's easy not to long for it. It is easy not to have any percentage. I want to end with a story. Nandor Katz was 18 years old when the Germans invaded Hungary. He was taken to the Mauthausen death camp in Austria while his family perished at Auschwitz. In 1945, um, cats, along with thousands of other starved and sick prisoners, were forced to march in the cold to the Gunskirchen Lager camp, a slave labor camp that had no sanitation, no food, and no running water. But the war was coming to an end, so Adolf Hitler did his guards to kill all the prisoners. But the guards were afraid to kill the prisoners because they knew that the Americans were nearby. This is 1945. The war was ending. And so what they did instead is that they abandoned these labor camps and left the prisoners uh, alone to die. Alan Moskin was another 18-year-old. He was a Marine in the U.S. Army. They had been in combat in France, in Germany, and Austria. And they had already freed a prisoner of war camp when they heard about this uh, um, Gunskirchen camp and thought that the Gunskirchen camp was a rumor uh, until they, they encountered the horrendous stench of death that came out of the Gunskirchen labor camp. On May 4, 1945, the American 71st Infantry arrived at the camp, and what they saw there was shocking. There were piles and piles of decomposing bodies. There were only about 15,000 people left in the camp, and they barely looked like humans. Their arms and their feet were like broomsticks. Their cheeks were hollowed out. Their eyes were sunken in into their sockets. Their body was covered with sores beneath because they didn't know how to eat because they had been starving for months. But one of the people that Moskin rescued was 18-year-old Nandor Katz. And after his rescue, Nandor Katz longed to meet his rescuer, and he could never meet his rescuer who had saved him from that mess until 72 years later, when both of them were 91 in 2017, he was able to meet uh, the man that had saved him from that camp. Ladies and gentlemen, the wedding countdown has already begun. And there will be full union of the prisoner and the liberator of the slave and the redeemer, of the sinner and the savior, of the creature and the creator, of the bride and the groom. 
I'm going to give the opportunity for two groups of people to respond to the sermon. First, is there anyone that is not prepared? That is not prepared. If there's anyone that's never invited Jesus into your life, I'm going to ask you to stand up so that we can pray together. Only one who is, who is a believer but is not prepared enough. You can also stand up and we can pray together. Also, if there's someone who needs a reminder, you may be going through some, some difficult circumstances. You may be going through suffering. You may be going through circumstances where you have questioned the presence of God. You can also stand up and we will pray together. If there's anyone who is listening, who's never come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the first step of preparation is to invite Jesus into your life. You can pray a prayer like this after me. It's not a magical prayer, but if it's a prayer that you mean from the bottom of your heart, God will fulfill it. You can pray something like this, Dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, and I cannot save myself. Thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection. Thank you that if I confess my sins and I believe in you, I hope of future marriage and celebration and the realization of every dream. Heavenly Father, I pray for those of us who are standing up. We have been Christians for a while. And sometimes we don't think about what you have in store for us in the future. We are so busy with our current situation that we have not prepared. The marriage could be next week and we are not prepared. We have hardly thought about it. We hardly long for it. And as a result, we, there's so much behavioral changes that we can make. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength to put you and your coming and everything about you front and center. I pray for those of us who need to be reminded that, the, that our Lord God Almighty reigns. Thank you that no matter what happens to us, like you showed in the book of Revelation, no matter what happens, you are the Lord God Almighty and you reign continually and forever.